put that in perspective, they went in to open up, and this was the bloodiest day in aviation army history. They went in to open up a fire base, which was called Lolo. And uh, that was like a month into this now. And that's when the NVA had all their people there. They had two two or three assault helicopter companies go into Lolo or try to. And at the end of the day, 11 helicopters were shot down the first day trying to insert these men. An excerpt from today's guest, whose current book is a fictional take on the largest helicopter assault of the Vietnam War. 101st Airborne veteran and author Larry Friedland is here to talk about chariots in the sky, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. I've just released a brand new documentary. You can watch online for free on Tubi, the streaming service from Fox. The show is called Weather and Warfare, Millennia to Modern Time. Weather and warfare dramatically retraces the meteorological forces during battlefield engagements that doomed or saved civilizations. In 1588, more than half of the Spanish Armada on its way around northern Britain was destroyed by storms in retreat back to Spain. Napoleon's attack on Russia was stopped cold by winter weather, as was Hitler's siege of Leningrad. Just click on the link in this episode's description to watch on the web or download the app or watch on Roku for free. I hope you check it out. Welcome back. Today's guest joined the U.S. Army and served one tour in Vietnam with the 101st Airborne Division as an infantry officer and a CH-47 helicopter pilot. He's the recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross with one oak leaf cluster, the Air Medal with 10 oak leaf clusters, the Vietnam Service Medal with three bronze stars, the Bronze Star, and other military service medals. His latest book is called Chariots in the Sky, a story about U.S. Army assault helicopter pilots at war in Vietnam. And veteran and author Larry Friedland joins us now. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate you inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I have been as well. And before we get to the book, could you tell us a little bit about your service in Vietnam and when you joined? I was drafted in June of 1968 into the Army after graduating from college in June. Reported uh, in July, went up ba- going through basic advanced training and infantry. <clears throat> I was given an opportunity to attend OCS, which I did, infantry OCS. And after completing that and being commissioned as a second lieutenant, I spent about six months at Benning, volunteered for helicopter training, ended up at uh, Fort Walters, Texas, and then Fort Rucker. And I was ready to be shipped over in January of 1971. I had recently been married. uh, And I was fortunate at the completion of my flight training to be given opportunity to transition to to CH-47 helicopters. Everyone was trained after nine months as a Huey pilot, but I graduated in the top three of my class and was given that opportunity and I took it. So I kept me in the States a little longer and ended up shipping out on January the 3rd of 1971. Mm. Uh, a couple of days to get to Vietnam and then uh, arrived in Tonsonut uh, and uh, was assigned from there. Tonsonut's down by Saigon. and was assigned from there to join the 101st Airborne Division, uh, which was assigned an I-Corps up in the northern part of South Vietnam. They were stationed in Phu Bai, Way, Camp Eagle, Camp Evans. And their AO operational area was uh, basically that entire region from Way up to the DMZ. 
and that included like Kaesan, the Ashaw Valley, Quang Tree, Fubai, and a few other places. Uh, I was assigned to the uh, A Company, 159th Aviation Battalion, Chinook Company, and there were three companies, A, B, and C, and each, each had 16 Chinooks. Uh, and each company, I think, averaged about 30 to 35 pilots at the time. Mm. And uh, I, when I got into company, you're initiated as a new pilot and you're given a call sign. And this is kind of interesting. Uh, we, our company was called the Pachyderms. And then you would put a number next to it. And they had, as I recall, about 50 numbers available. And if there was anyone in that sequence that hadn't been taken, you could pick it. And at the time when I got there, the number two five was available and I was 24. I just turned 24 about three weeks earlier. And I thought, you know, if I live long enough and make it back home, I'll be 25. So I picked 25. <laughs> My call sign became Pachyderm two five. And you know, consequently two five has always been considered a lucky number by me. Definitely. Um, your book is about your service using fictional characters, but it was, it's based on a real battle, the Battle of Lamson, seven nineteen. Right. Tell us a little. Uh, that started shortly after you arrived. Yes, uh, we didn't know it at the time uh, when we got assigned to the hundred first, but they were sending all new pilots up to the hundred first in preparation for this uh, this battle. And uh, we got, in, I got in in my company, and uh, was given a couple weeks to uh, get acquainted with the AO, and I'd fly with experienced pilots, and they'd take me around to the different bases and, and areas in our assigned AO. And let me get reacquainted with the Chinook because I hadn't been in the cockpit for about 45 days. Oh. Two weeks in, uh, we get called into a meeting the night before our involvement starts. And uh, all the pilots are there with uh, our, uh, some people from 101st uh, Aviation Group coming down and giving us a general outline of what's going to happen. And basically, Lamson was an operation designed to uh, try and cut off the flow of uh, materials flowing down through the Ho Chi Minh Trail that ran through Laos into Cambodia and fed across those boundaries into South Vietnam. And some people think the trail just went all the way down to just, south, just outside of Saigon there in Cambodia. But actually, the trail ran all the way down, but it had offshoots, if you will, all along the trail to get into every area in South Vietnam, including ours up near Quezon. Hmm. So they felt like uh, if they could get this massive incursion and get into Laos, they could cut that, cut it off and do some damage, hopefully for a good while. It was designed to run uh, four months. And because the year before, when Nixon had approved the Cambodian incursion with the same idea, and it was quite successful, Mm -hmm. uh, but media picked up on it and the uh, Congress picked up on it and they basically tied his hands and said, you're not going to send any more Americans outside of South Vietnam. So uh, in that respect, they decided to make this an all South Vietnamese operation on the ground and Americans could not get on the ground. So uh, 101st was tasked with reopening Quezon up there in the northwest corner which was close to Laos and North Vietnam. Uh, we brought in heavy, uh, a heavy concentration of folks and reactivated it, expanded it, built extra heliports. And they brought in some other units to help out because it was a big operation. 
And that was the jump off point for the South Vietnamese. They, they threw in 22,000 of their men, mostly Arvins, uh, army guys, and uh, some Marine units. And their job was to go into Laos, cut a path of about 80 miles in and reach a little town called Tacom way out there which was believed to be at the time one of the North Vietnamese major supply depots deep in Laos. And they did the incursion uh, along a Route 9, a dirt road that literally just went straight out to this location. And it was flanked on most sides by valley or by hills and some pretty high mountain ranges. Mm -hmm. And the goal was, or the, the plan or their strategy was to send mechanized units down that road and put uh, rangers uh, at fire bases down the road every 10 miles or so to provide flanking cover. So they put a couple on the right, they put a couple on the left of the road about 10 miles in, and then they'd leapfrog out another 10 miles and do the same thing. Uh, we being the Americans, because the, and this also tied into Nixon's Vietnamization plan. He was turning the war over to the South Vietnamese as fast as possible. And they use this as their major uh, uh, reasoning, if you will, uh, for uh, this this operation being South Vietnamese uh, soldiers. They would do all the fighting and we'd do all the flying because they hadn't really had enough a helicopter force set up yet. We were training them with some, but they just didn't have the capacity or the uh, the experience. So the 101st being that was our area and there was like 680 helicopters in our division at the time we were tasked with providing them all the helicopter support inside Laos. Uh, what this operation ended up being was designed for four months. Um, the first week or so when we began inserting these fire bases in along Route 9, there's one called 30 and 31 to the right or the north side of uh, Highway 9, and there were two on the left side, I don't remember their names. Those got in okay with little trouble and the mechanized units started moving out of Quezon through the border there into Laos and working their way down the down the road. And again, the first week or two, it wasn't too bad. It, it wasn't going as fast as they wanted. But by mm. the end of the second week, uh, the NVA responded and they started pouring in their men. This was the actual North Vietnamese Army. These weren't VC or anything like that. These were their highly trained people. And uh, to put that in perspective, the South Vietnamese dedicated about 22,000 men, took about three weeks to get them all in country as we went further out. And the NVA, by the end of the third week, had brought down over 60,000 troops. Wow. So it was like three to one by the end of the third week, give or take a little bit. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, British SAS Special Forces veteran and author Des Powell joins us to discuss his top-selling book, Bravo 30. I was in Air Troop, which is within the SAS. They class that as an entry skill. That's entering into a volatile country uh, not seen. And the regiments with the reputation that we have, we get involved in all conflicts around the world. And the conflicts that people know about is Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, down in Africa, Somalia, Sierra Leone, Latin America. And then we have clandestine operations which are the operations which are kind of secret and not talked about. Truly Des's book is one I couldn't put down. And that's next time. We had uh, supported them initially with Hueys going in to set up their fire bases on each side of the road 
and bring in their troops. And then the Chinooks, which I, which we flew, or I flew, we were charged with su supplying them all their supplies because we could bring in a lot, sling loads, you know, two or sure. three slings with their water, their ammo, their cannons, uh, their building materials, and so on and so forth. We didn't ever take in any uh, troops uh, in the Laos uh, because of the severity of the fighting that started almost within the end of the second week and only got worse. Uh, so uh, our job was to resupply them uh, as, as, uh, as they needed it. The Hueys kept the troops on the ground, uh, helped to open up the new fire bases and uh, take out wounded because we again we couldn't bring any anybody in or out internally uh when this operation started it was uh you know it was it was sketchy to begin with uh we, we really didn't feel comfortable with it as pilots right. we were literally asked to sign documents that night the first night of the meeting i mentioned earlier that if we went down we wouldn't get out of our helicopters <laughs> you can believe that Wow. Uh, that we'd be rescued, uh, someone come in and get us, that we weren't supposed to join the fighting on the ground, uh, which, uh, you know, was a little curious right out of the gate. But anyway, we, uh, I think going into the third week, uh, the situation deteriorated rapidly. Virtually every fire base that the Huey company, salt companies tried to put in after those first four, as we leapfrog out, the additional 10 miles, which put us about 20 miles into the country. Uh, it was a slugfest. Uh, the Hueys would be shot at going in, trying to get the troops in, and, and uh, uh, it took them a long time to do it. Uh, and we were losing a lot of helicopters and, and, and crew members doing that. To put mm -hmm. that in perspective, uh, I think it was the fourth week they went in to open up, and this was the bloodiest day in aviation army history. They went in to open up a fire base, which was called Lolo. And uh, it was uh, about 30 miles in, give or take, uh, maybe 25 to 30 miles in uh, around Route 9. It was on the south side. And it was one of several, but it was the furthest out at that time. And uh, that was like a month into this now. And that's when the NV had all their people there uh, that were dedicated to this. Uh, they had two, two or three assault helicopter companies go into Lolo or try to. And at the end of the day, and this is, uh, I'm reading from my notes, and this is, this is historically true, 11 helicopters were shot down the first day trying to insert these men. 44 more were damaged and several men were killed and wounded. It was a really black day for American Army aviation helicopter pilots, the worst day of the war. Uh, but it was axiomatic of what we dealt with. I mean, it was the worst day during this operation, but there wasn't a day go by when helicopters weren't hit, crew members weren't hit, trying to get into these bases. Uh, again, it was designed for 120 days, but uh, it only lasted 60 days. They decided to pull out. They couldn't get much past Lolo. And oh, the sir. mechanized units, you know, they just they didn't get any further. But to do a political, if you will, uh, expedient, they decided to leapfrog all that and send out a bunch of uh, helicopters into Tacoma. And there was a, probably one of the largest helicopter assaults of the war. Over 120 were dedicated wow. to it. Yeah, wow. we just flew everybody we could out to Tacoma and dropped them in there. <clears throat> and that lasted a couple of days, and they really didn't have any activity out there. We uh, 
we didn't surprise them. There wasn't anything there. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. But Imagine that. Reached their objective. <laughs> reached their objective. Yeah. So uh, pulled them out. And then the rest of the second month, we spent all our time trying to get the South Vietnamese uh, back across the border and save as many as we could. Anyone from that time frame could probably remember seeing some iconic pictures of Hueys trying to get out of fire bases with Arvin soldiers hanging onto the skids and everything. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Just incredible. No. Uh, so it was a, it was a, you know, it was a major operation and it turned out to be the, the, the most costly of the war for helicopter pilots. Yeah, I, I read that. Now you felt compelled to write your book about, uh, based on this battle. Mm-hmm. And I want to move to that. Okay. And you decided to do a sort of a narrative nonfiction book with uh, mm-hmm. fictional characters. And I was reading through some of the notes, and one of the characters was uh, an army commander character who was more interested in personal glory than the safety of his own men. Was this character based on a real person? Well, all my characters are composites. Uh, this the man you're talking about is uh, in the in the book is is uh, Parker, mm-hmm. and he's a composite. Uh, he's not uh, that character. I made him more dramatic than uh, the composites that I drew on. But uh, yeah, he, he 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 some of the things that are depicted uh, we experienced, and, mm-hmm. and what's what's been interesting is. Uh, you know, since the book's been out, I've heard from a lot of, uh, of folks that serve their pilots and some ground people. I mean, we're talking hundreds. It's been very sure. gratifying, too. And almost to a T, they'll laugh about that and say, I knew a Parker. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, obviously wrote him pretty well. <laughs> but he Parker didn't go got around, time. yeah. Yeah, he got around. He said, I worked for that guy one time. Uh, but, yeah, he, he's, he's a composite, and uh, I wanted him. I wanted to make him uh, you know, kind of a bad guy, if that's the right word, but uh, a little more drama. Uh, I never ran across the commander that would do what he did as far as putting his men in too much danger to get rid of them. But I'm not saying that never happened because you hear all kinds of stories. But, you know, he was, he was just a composite, but there was some truth to him. Yeah, yeah. Now, I believe this is your first book, isn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, it's a... It's a very strong outing for a first book. Uh, it's been very well received. Do you plan to write more in this uh, genre? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've actually uh, signed a contract in January of this year for a trilogy. And oh. I had written, yeah, I talked to my publisher last year while we were getting ready to publish Chariots and, and, and then market it. I had this concept in mind and i ran it by him he said that sounds really good he said you know give me a give me an over overview of it and uh, dive in and, and write write your first uh first manuscript so i spent last year and into the first part of the year and i drafted uh book one of this manuscript and i'll skip all the meat and potatoes of it but right. uh, decided to write a trilogy uh, it's titled legacy of honor uh, book one is called The Patriarch, or subtitled The Patriarch. Book two, The Son, and book three, The Descendants. And what it does is it follows one American family's three generations of men serving in our country's wars and conflicts. 
starting with World War One. Oh. And <clears throat> book one, The Patriarch, is ready to go. We're going to be publishing it uh, sometime in August. We're just waiting for a few more uh, ARC review, advanced reader copy reviews to come in. Sure. Uh, waiting on Kirkus, which is due in in a week or two, but all the reviews so far that have come back have just been terrific. And the new book is already put out on my website with with, with a, a write up and uh, the reviews I'm getting were loading into that on the website. And it's a historical fiction uh, genre. Right. All the characters are going to be well from World War One. I'll digress a minute. I dedicate it to my grandfather and the men that served in World War One as doughboys. Sure. Uh, I was real close to my grandfather who served in France in the trenches and uh, he never talked about it uh, as a lot of men don't. But um, I learned a little bit about some of his experiences through my father and some of his friends. And a real quick digression, which is in I put it in the acknowledgments of my book, which is really pretty, pretty clever, if you will, or, or interesting to me. Um, granddad, when my dad, dad was a career officer 30 years and he was all the time traveling when I was younger and signed on, uh, uh areas that we couldn't accompany him to. Right. He was signed to Greenland, uh, in, when I was in the fifth grade. And so, uh, dad put us, uh, living next door to my grandparents who were living in a little town called Louisville outside of Canton, Ohio. And my grandfather was a big uh, poker player. And he was part of a group that uh, of eight or nine other fellows who all served in World War One in the trenches. I don't know if they served together, but they all served. And they they would meet once a month on a Saturday night and play poker all night. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, Granddad, and being on his fifth grade, he, he would take me there occasionally <clears throat> to his poker game, and I get to spend the night there and uh, go. And you know, the guys got to know me, and they'd play poker and smoke their pipes and talk, and I eat their food and drink Cokes and watch a little TV on their telly, pass mm -hmm. out. Granddad would make sure I was comfortable. And many times that I, that I did this, and I don't know how many, but there was a lot over that year and a half, uh, I would hear them talking later in the morning. It'd be you know, two, three, four, five, and they'd already had a little bit to drink, but they'd be talking among themselves their shared experiences about their oh. war days and some of the stuff they put up with afterwards. And that gave me a lot of uh, thoughts, if you will, that I, I could build on in writing book one. And of course, I did a lot of research too. But, uh, yeah, yeah. And I wrote it the same way. I'm telling it through a character, a first person. Uh, I want the reader to live through the character. I see. It's a interesting genre. I've written some historical fiction um, mm. on my own. And uh, there's a lot of freedom in that. Yeah. that type of writing because uh, you don't have to stay exactly true to historical events so you can bring in different elements so what was this uh it's a trilogy what was this book coming out in august called the it, Patriot? Uh, it'd be out in august and the title is legacy of honor legacy then, of honor uh subtitled the first book is the patriarch uh well we look forward to that but your current book that we've been talking about is Chariots in the Sky. Larry, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Next time, British SAS Special Forces veteran and author Des Powell joins us to discuss his top-selling book, Bravo 3-0. I was in Air Troop, which is within the SAS. They class that as an entry skill. 
that's entering into a volatile country uh, not seen and the regiment with the reputation that we have we get involved in all conflicts around the world and the conflicts that people know about is Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, down in Africa, Somalia, Sierra Leone, Latin America and then we have clandestine operations which are the operations which are kind of secret and not talked about. Truly Des's book is one I couldn't put down and that's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spirit YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.